You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're all safe and well, and you're all very welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Masterclass series. This is the first webinar in our 2021 series, and what we'd like to cover over the next 50 minutes or so are what we predict to be the key themes for you as employers over the next 12 months. Every January, we run one of these sessions where we set out our predictions for the key themes for employers for the following year. And indeed, we prepared one last year. And looking back, I think I can quite modestly say, at least on one level, our predictions turned out to be grossly inaccurate. They're not inaccurate in the sense that they weren't relevant for employers or that they didn't feature. They did, but none of us predicted the extent to which they would be so grossly overshadowed by COVID. And I think it's fair to say, for the next 12 months again, COVID is going to remain the predominant theme. However, as you'll see from today, there are other themes out there that we think you need to be aware of as employers. Some of them come from COVID, some of them predate COVID, and others have nothing to do with COVID whatsoever. To help me with today's discussion, I've asked some other members of the Matheson Employment Pensions and Benefits Group to join us. So just to give you a sense of who's on today's panel, let me bring you through the first slide on the agenda. Alison Finn, a senior associate in our group, is going to bring us through the whole concept of employee welfare, which includes the right to disconnect. This is a classic example of something which predates COVID, in that two years ago, employers were already talking about this. However, COVID has absolutely accelerated it and increased its importance on the employer agenda. So we'd like to take a look at that. After Alison, Laura Enser, another senior associate from our group, is going to talk to us about the government's recently published National Remote Work Strategy. And this includes the right to request remote working. Again, I can see already from the queries coming in in our group over the last couple of weeks that this is something employers are already quite worried about. They're trying to understand how will this actually work in practice. And I think a lot of the concern around this is down to how it has been perhaps misunderstood in the media. So it'll be helpful for Laura to bring us through that and reassuring as well to see just how far this right actually does go and where it stops. After Laura, Geraldine Carr, one of her employment partners, is going to bring us through some updates to the Code of Practice on Bullying that was issued on the 23rd of December. I'm sure a large number of you are sitting up on Christmas Eve reading your way through that one. After Geraldine, Laura and I are going to talk about some of the employment implications of the Christmas Eve agreement in the whole context of Brexit. In particular, we're going to look at immigration, as in employees coming from the UK to Ireland and vice versa. But also we're going to look at the implications for European works councils. And then finally, Russell Rochford, one of our employment partners, is going to take a snapshot view of what are the key themes for employers now in the whole area of COVID, mainly in regard to the level five restrictions and the use of vaccines and how that's likely to pan out over the next 12 months. As you can see, we've a fair bit to get through. So I'm going to turn quickly to Alison to just start off on the whole concept of employee welfare and the right to disconnect. So Alison, the whole move over the last 12 months to mass remote working has really brought this whole concept of the right to disconnect into sharp focus. So can you tell us a little bit about what exactly it would involve if it is introduced? Thanks, Brian. Um, the right to disconnect is a proposed statutory right to banish the always-on culture that would essentially provide employees with the right to not engage in any work-related activity during private time, and also the right not to be reprimanded for failing to engage in work during this time. We've now arrived at a much more flexible working environment for many employers at a faster pace than they could have anticipated, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a result, the question of an employee's right to disconnect has really gained traction over the last 12 months or so, particularly in the context of the increased shift to remote working when employers have less visibility over employees. Um, there was a report carried out by Forsa that found that while the majority of respondents indicated that they do wish to continue to work remotely in the future, nearly half of the respondents indicated that they found it more difficult to disconnect from work while working remotely. 
And this is something that has been on the government's radar really over the past number of years. So even if we look back to 2019, the pre-pandemic times, um, the Department of Business, Enterprise and Innovation carried out a survey and this highlighted that nearly half of those who took part in the national survey indicated that switching off and being overworked were really the biggest challenge of working remotely. So statutory right to disconnect was identified at that time as an issue that needed to be addressed by the government. And what stage are we actually at with the rollout? Sure. So what are existing working time and health and safety laws? They do offer some protection to employees against excessive working hours. It is clear that the current framework is inadequate to provide a genuine right to disconnect, particularly where working time thresholds are often not properly monitored or adhered to. So it is likely that a statutory right to disconnect will be given legislative effect in the not too distant future. And there was a public consultation process that was carried out in December of last year on introducing a new code of practice, which would give employees the right to disconnect. And I know that Laura is going to touch on this later on in the session. And also at the moment, there are two private member bills at the second stage before the doll. And both of them focus on making an employee's right to disconnect, a statutory right. So that's the Organization of Working Time Amendment Right to Disconnect Bill, and also the Working From Home COVID-19 Bill. And can you just give us a little bit more detail on what else is in those two bills? Sure. So if we turn firstly to the Organisation of Working Time Right to Disconnect Bill. So that really seeks to create a legal right to disconnect and places an obligation on employers to have a right to disconnect policy in place. And that bill also proposes a right for employees not to be penalised if they disregard a work-related communication sent after their normal working hours. However, it's not clear in the bill what sanctions would be imposed on an employer in the event of penalisation. And then if we look secondly to the working from home COVID-19 bill, so that really has three key proposals. So the first one is to require employers to provide a policy for employees sending and receiving work-related communications outside of working hours. And there is a proposal to ensure that employers cannot require employees to access any work-related communications between an employee's regular kind of finishing time in work and their next starting time of work. So that really, in essence, does provide employees with a right to disconnect. And the bill also requires employers to provide employees who have to work from home due to the COVID-19 pandemic with a workstation and a flat rate payment to meet the additional expenses of working from home. And it's also probably worth mentioning that this bill kind of seeks to disapply certain provisions of our health and safety legislation where the employer meets certain obligations. But it's unlikely that this particular proposal would pass in its current form because really like any health and safety related proposals that would risk compromising our robust health and safety legislation would likely be subject to intense legislative scrutiny. It's also important to say that, you know, both of these bills are opposition member bills. So they're not really indicative of the detail that we can expect to see. And in particular, that second bill I mentioned, it really does go much further than what we expect to see. And it's kind of an example of how the concept won't work nearly if it's enforced too rigidly. But it is clear that this is a topic that's going to be very much in focus for the year ahead. And the introduction of some sort of right to disconnect is on the cards for employers. And employees. And I think, Alison, that's an important point in understanding the difference between the opposition bill, which sets out certain proposals, and what the government may actually be considering itself. Because naturally, a lot of the media attention is focusing on what seems the most extreme or what seems to be the biggest problem for employers. So it's, it's always important to understand actually what is likely to be included in the, the draft legislation if we see that. And then moving on, one of the issues that has also come up, though perhaps it hasn't attracted as much attention, is the proposals around statutory sick pay. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, well, Brian, Ireland is actually only one of a small number of European countries in which there is no legal obligation on employers to provide for sick pay in the same way as they do for annual leave, for example. And as you know, it's currently left up to employers whether they will provide paid sick leave to their employees 
And if so, the duration and the rate of this pay is really just decided by each employer. In practice, the duration of sick pay really does vary significantly between organisations from a few days to a number of months. And it usually involves just an employer topping up any state paid illness benefit. And there was a survey carried out back in 2019, and that found that only 44% of Irish employers actually do provide any paid form of sick leave. Um, So where sick leave isn't provided by an employer, the state pays illness benefit subject to certain conditions. But these payments are typically much less than an employee's weekly pay. So as a result, like there have long been calls on the government to address this issue and to bring Ireland in line with other European jurisdictions. And in September of last year, the sick leave and parental leave COVID-19 bill was published. So if passed, that bill would give employees the legal right to paid sick leave from their employer. And that bill provides that after four weeks service, employees will be entitled to sick pay from the first day of illness for a continuous period of six weeks or up to 30 days in any 12-month period. And it's proposed um, in that bill that sick pay would be paid at the same rate as annual leave. Um, Now, in our view, given the presence of this requirement in many other European countries, we will likely see an obligation on employers to pay sick leave by the end of this year or early next year at the latest. However, the extent of this obligation is really yet to be determined because there is significant debate that the proposals as they're currently drafted really do place an undue burden on employers. And it was actually reported in the media just over the weekend that the government are set to publish a new bill for statutory sick pay with employers being initially asked to provide paid sick leave to employees for up to two weeks in any 12-month period. And we understand that the plan is to publish a bill in March for enactment of the new scheme by the summer with the introduction then to follow either later this year or early the following year. So we'll keep you updated as this progresses. Okay, thanks, Alison. And then, of course, the whole right to disconnect and sick leave, they were at one point pre-COVID just part of a number of measures that we would have looked at for employers in terms of promoting the work-life balance agenda and how to improve diversity in the workplace by helping working parents. And we've seen some changes in that area as well with proposals to increase the level of leave entitlements for parents as part of work-life balance. So can you just bring us up to date on that as well, please? Yeah, of course. So last year's budget, that set out a planned extension to parents' leave, which will bring the entitlement from two to five weeks leave. And it also extends the time frame to take parents' leave to two years from the child's birth or placement with their adoptive family. And these changes are due to take effect in April 2021. And when employers are planning for the year ahead, you know, it should also be remembered that these changes are separate and distinct from the recent increases to an employee's parental leave entitlement from 22 weeks to 26 weeks of leave in September of last year. So I really should say as well that these changes are, are consistent with the European-wide initiative to modernise the existing European legal framework in relation to work-life balance arrangements. And as you might know, the European Work-Life Balance Directive is to be implemented in member states by August 2022. And that kind of provides parents of children up to at least eight years of age and carers with the right to request flexible working arrangements for the purposes of adjusting their working patterns, including through the use of remote working arrangements or introducing flexible working schedules or reduction even in the individual's working hours. So the purpose really of all these initiatives is to encourage employees who are parents and carers to remain in the workforce. And I think sometimes people are surprised at how limited the level of paternity leave, for example, is in Ireland compared to so many other European countries where people would have expected the benefit perhaps culturally to be lower. So it is something that's going to change. I can see, Alison, from the questions coming in already on the Q&A feature that we will be coming back to you at the end for some questions on the right to disconnect again. But if I can turn to Laura now and just to focus on the, the whole government national remote work strategy for a moment. Laura, maybe we'll just start at the start here. Can you tell us about what the proposal is on the right to work remotely, please? Yeah, so the government's national remote work strategy, which is called Making Remote Work, was published by the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment on the 15th of January. 
And the strategy defines remote work as an arrangement where work is wholly or partially carried out at an alternative work site other than the default place of work. So the purpose of the strategy is to give effect to the government's vision that remote working is to become a permanent feature of the Irish employment landscape in a way that maximises economic, social and environmental benefits. The strategy sets out guidance for employers and employees on remote working, and it details the government's role in ensuring that remote work can be facilitated across the country on a long-term basis. The strategy acknowledges that the world of work has changed forever as a result of the pandemic, and it refers to research that was carried out by NUIG in October of last year, which found that 94% of participants wanted remote work to continue after the pandemic. And this is in line with what we have been hearing from clients since March of last year. And many clients have already taken, or many of the kind of larger, more agile businesses have already taken steps to consider how remote working can be part of their post-COVID future and have already been seeking advice on the implications of this. The strategy highlights that there are a number of benefits with remote working, and these are set out in the slide and include, for example, employee retention, increased labour market participation. So, for example, in individuals with disabilities or caregiving responsibilities, increased flexibility, improvements in work-life balance and family well-being, cost efficiencies for businesses, and also a reduced commute, which leads to reduced pollution and carbon emissions. However, the strategy also identifies that there are a number of negative consequences associated with remote working, such as mental health difficulties, feelings of isolation and loneliness, and increased stress and difficulty switching off, leading to increased working hours, and also a lack of innovation and creativity because of the difficulty in working groups and collaborating. So the government's aim is to harness the benefits of remote working while seeking to mitigate any potential negative impacts. And what we've been hearing from employers is that this strategy has been welcomed as proactive and progressive in what it is seeking to achieve, provided that the means of achieving those objectives are not too restrictive for employers. And Laura, there's a lot of detail in it, obviously. What would you say are the most important aspects that employers need to be aware of? Yeah, so of particular note for employers is the government's intention to introduce a statutory right for employees to request remote working and to establish a code of practice on the right to disconnect, which Alison has already touched on. So we'll be eagerly awaiting the detail on these measures, which is due to be published this year. But for now, I'll give a quick kind of overview of what we think might be involved. So firstly, on the legislation on the right to request remote working. So this won't create a right or entitlement for employees to work remotely at their discretion, as has been suggested in the media. What it will do, however, is provide a legal framework as to how and when they can make requests for remote working and will set out guidance for how employees should handle such requests. And based on similar rights in existing legislation in Ireland and in the UK, we think that it's likely that employers will be required to fully consider the requests and to provide a response within a reasonable period of time. However, we don't think that employers will be obliged to grant the requests, but they will likely be required to deal with them in a reasonable manner and to demonstrate that there are good business reasons or other justifications for any refusal. So, for example, employers might have objective criteria against which they assess such requests, which might include the need for employees to spend time with their team or might be based on the fact that certain equipment is needed for the employee to carry out the role which can't be provided remotely. So... Recent commentary has suggested that employees will have a right of appeal to the WRC in circumstances where their employer unreasonably refuses their request to work remotely. So we'll have to wait until we see the draft legislation in order to confirm this. But where a request is unreasonably dealt with by an employer, the employer might be exposed to a number of claims from employees. And we've already seen a case this week issued by the WRC which found that an employee was constructively dismissed in circumstances where it was held that their employer unreasonably refused their request for them to work from home. So the government's intention is to introduce this legislation in the third quarter of 2021. Then on the code of practice on the right to disconnect, so the WRC has been tasked with drafting this, and Alison has already mentioned it and the bills that are before the government. But one point the strategy makes is that there's a difficulty in devising a statutory right to disconnect because the overregulation of remote working can undermine its flexibility. And this might be the reason that the government has decided for now to introduce a code of practice on this rather than to proceed by way of legislation. 
And clients have also had employees who have expressed concern with any proposals to limit their access to company systems outside of normal working hours because a number of employees, for example, who are working parents require the flexibility to work throughout the day at the times that best suit them. So the Code of Practice will set out guidance with regard to best practices on employee disengagement outside of normal working hours. And it won't be legally binding, but it'll be admissible as evidence before the Workplace Relations Commission. And it's expected that this will be introduced in the first quarter of this year, so not too far from now. Okay, so I think that's a key point, Laura, that it's not an automatic right to work remotely. It's a right to request it. But in reality, post this code, even though an employer can say no, it will be harder for the employer to say no. I think that's the bit we all need to understand. So in terms of getting ready for this, what steps should employers be considering now to prepare for these changes? Yeah, so we recommend that employers assess their current business models and working arrangements in order to consider whether remote working is suitable for their workforce and where they identify roles that are not suitable for remote working, that they carry out an analysis as to why this is the case, as it's likely they'll have to be, able, be in a position to provide justifications for this. We also recommend that they review their systems and processes to consider whether they have the systems and processes in place in order to support remote working for their employees. And the strategy highlights the importance of discussing remote working arrangements with employees, so employee input should be sought. And with regards to remote working policies, these will need to be updated to align with the legislation on the right to request remote working. But we would hold off on updating these just for the moment until we have a better idea of what this will involve. So maybe until we've seen the draft legislation on this. Then on the code of practice, as we know that this is coming and coming very shortly, we recommend that employers use this time to identify how they can facilitate or how their organisation can facilitate employee disengagement outside of working hours. So that might include, for example, not scheduling meetings for outside of the core hours or encouraging employees not to check their emails while they're on outside of those hours or while they're on annual leave. And that will also involve employers considering whether they have the supports and systems in place in order to make sure that employees are comfortable switching off during those periods. And of course, a lot of this is driven by culture. I am aware of one US tech company where if employees, managers, in fact, engage in their email while on holidays, it's actually seen as a negative thing because it sends out a message that they haven't built up the necessary team around them to be able to support people's absence, which I thought was an interesting perspective. And, and that came to light maybe four or five years ago. I think just as a general observation, what you and Alison have been talking about marks a very significant change in the world of work. It really does bring home the point that COVID is going to be before and after. And curiously, we're right now in the middle of it all. But it does mean for employers, the next two to three years, and perhaps even longer, we're looking at changes that are going to outlive COVID by many, many years, and they're going to become permanent features of the, of the way we work. And I think for employers that go about this with the right attitude and can engage with their workforce on this, they will be able to tap into the type of benefits that the, the programme is talking about. Alison's slide, maybe it was you and Laura, talked about increased productivity, increased creativity, retention, employee welfare, cultural benefits to the organisation. So there are gains here for both employers and employees alike. And I think even on a personal level, as professionals in this area, as HR practitioners or employment lawyers, it is an incredibly interesting and creative period to be in the thick of this because we, we can see so much change going on around us and there's so much to think about. Thank you for that. Let me turn now to Geraldine, who is going to bring us through some of the changes on the recently updated Code of Practice. So Geraldine, again, let's start at the start here. Tell us a bit about what has changed as regards to this Code of Practice. Thanks, Brian. It's uh, The Code of Practice was introduced in December, just before Christmas, and effectively it replaces the Health and Safety Authority's 2007 Code of Practice and also the Labour Relations Commission 2002 Code of Practice. So those would have been the codes of practice that employers would typically be cross-referencing their anti-bullying policies against. But this new Code of Practice is a replacement for those. It's very comprehensive. It contains very good practical guidance on the prevention of workplace bullying and how to manage allegations when they arise. It runs to 
just over 50 pages. So there's quite a lot of detail in there in terms of detailed guidance for employers. So it is a useful read. It doesn't deal with the issues of harassment or sexual harassment. And it notes specifically that it doesn't and that those issues should be dealt with by reference to the specific code of practice on harassment and sexual harassment. But it does acknowledge that employers can have a policy that covers both anti-bullying and anti-harassment, but just to take care that your harassment policy is in line with the Employment Equality Acts and the various codes of practice that relate to harassment. And then in terms of the legal effect of the code, because this is something that I've got a number of questions on to date, it's not legally binding. So failure to comply with the code of practice isn't an offence in and of itself, but it can be used in evidence in legal proceedings. And so like with other codes of practice that we have in the employment landscape, it can hinder an employer in their defence of legal proceedings if the employer hasn't adapted their policies and in practice implemented the provisions of the code when preventing workplace bullying and when investigating allegations of bullying in the workplace as well. So if you can save the people on the call the task of having to go through the, the 50 pages, what are the key aspects that employers need to be aware of? So I suppose the first thing is that it repeats the very long established definition of workplace bullying. So it notes that there must be an ongoing series of negative targeted behaviours that are intended to undermine a person's esteem and standing in a harmful way. It reiterates that an isolated act in and of itself isn't bullying. There must be a repeated pattern of behaviour and it very much aligns with the threshold that we saw established by the Supreme Court in the Ruffley case a couple of years ago, which almost heightened the threshold for establishing workplace bullying in that it provides some examples of what is workplace bullying. And for the first time, it calls out that cyberbullying actually can be included in that. So that's useful. But it also provides examples of behaviour that isn't workplace bullying. So for example, it says ordinary performance management isn't workplace bullying or giving constructive feedback to an employee or implementing reasonable corrective action like disciplinary sanctions and so on isn't bullying. So those examples are quite helpful and would be used to cover in a policy as well. One of the examples actually strangely says is that disrespectful behaviour in and of itself doesn't constitute bullying, whereas to my mind there are some examples where that could conceivably be used to undermine a person's esteem and standing in a harmful way. So we also think the context of the behaviours is important. And there is a new emphasis in the code of practice on informal resolution processes. So it very much calls out that mediation is a valuable tool and should be used um, or at least considered at the earliest possible opportunity in any allegation of bullying in the workplace. And it also prescribes a new two-stage informal process for resolving bullying complaints. So the first stage we are already familiar with from previous codes of practice and that involves you know that the victim alleged victim should raise the issue with the alleged perpetrator and seek to resolve the matter one-to-one and then if that doesn't work that the the matter can progress to the second stage of the informal process whereby an appropriately trained supervisor or manager in the organization is appointed to effectively gather the facts around it the context and then you know meet with both parties and agree a path forward and get the parties to sign their agreement to confirm that they will cooperate with the next steps. So that second stage is new. That seems to require a form of investigation by somebody internal who will have to gather facts and make a recommendation. And arguably that could potentially elongate the process around you know, resolution of bullying complaints. But there is a significant emphasis in the, in the code of practice to try and resolve matters informally where possible. And then where that hasn't worked in practice, there's a process for a formal investigation and resolution of the complaint. And the code of practice is quite prescriptive on what the investigation should entail. It provides for terms of reference should be provided and prepared in relation to the matter. And quite unusually, it does say that the investigator should find whether on the balance of probabilities the behaviour complained of did occur or not. 
So it seems to go a little bit further than investigations to date where we would carry out an investigation on a fact-gathering basis and then it would be for the investigator to determine whether or not the matter warrants referral to a disciplinary hearing. But the Code of Practice does say that the investigator shouldn't uphold or dismiss allegations. So in my view, that is consistent with the fact that they should be just gathering the facts and then considering whether it warrants escalation to a further disciplinary hearing. And is there anything you would advise employers to start doing now? Or is it more a case of wait until the first bullying complaint comes in and and then you address it? There certainly are some steps that can be taken now. So in the first instance, I'd recommend employers review their policies and consider updating them to bring them in line with the Code of Practice. The Code of Practice also talks about appointing a contact person, but it notes that this might not be applicable for every organisation. So, for example, it says that this person would be someone who would provide guidance and support to employees internally who may need advice on um, procedures under the anti-bullying policy. And again, it reiterates it's not a requirement to appoint this person, but it could be valuable in larger organisations where there might be that capacity to have assigned a person to that role. There's also a reference in the Code of Practice to the fact that workplace bullying is you know, an, an, a risk issue in the workplace. And so when organisations are conducting their risk assessments under existing health and safety legislation, it should address this risk of workplace bullying. And then the safety statement should be updated to note the preventative measures that employers are taking to prevent bullying in the workplace. So that's something that perhaps some safety statements to date don't already cover and, and should be updated. And then effective communication of, you know, the revised anti-bullying policy is key. So the Code of Practice recommends awareness training is carried out for employees and also that there's ongoing monitoring and review of the policy and that the policy is also communicated effectively to customers and clients and other business contacts, which I think in practice is an area where there isn't a huge amount of focus. So where possible, the policy should be displayed in a prominent place where non-employees might be able to see it or in manuals or or some other newsletters, if at all possible. And then I suppose with all internal employee matters, it's records should be kept of any preventive measures that are taken so that there is, from a litigation perspective, there is a a record there of all the steps that the employer has taken to prevent workplace bullying. Okay, thank you, Geraldine. Can we move on to the next topic now and just look at some of the employment law implications of Brexit? So, Laura, I'm back to you with a couple of questions, first of all, on the immigration side. And my first question is whether Brexit means any changes at all as regards the Irish immigration regime. Yes. So firstly, I guess Ireland and the UK have a common travel area, which allows Irish and UK nationals to move freely and work and live in either jurisdiction and to enjoy associated rights and entitlements such as access to healthcare, education and social welfare benefits. And the common travel area predates Ireland and the UK's membership of the European Union, and it's not dependent on it. Last year, the Irish and UK government signed a memorandum of understanding in which they reaffirmed their commitment to maintaining the common travel area in all circumstances. And subsequent legislation has been consistent with this. So what this means in practice is that UK nationals do not need any documentation or permission in order to continue with their lives in Ireland following Brexit and that Irish and UK nationals can continue to move freely between the countries and to work and live in either country without needing permission to do so. And UK nationals can apply for a withdrawal agreement beneficiary card if they want to, but they're not required to do so. So basically for Irish and UK nationals, there hasn't really been any change. Okay, so it's business as usual there. So what about if you have a UK national that has a, a spouse or family that are not UK nationals or Irish nationals or EEA members? Sometimes that comes up for us with clients where their family members may be US or whatever. Yes. Yeah, so for these individuals, it depends on whether they were living in Ireland prior to the 31st of December 2020. If they were, then it's simply that they must replace their current Irish residence permit card for a new card that states that they benefit from the withdrawal agreement. And they'll continue to have the same permission to live and work and study in Ireland or whatever that may be as they had before. For family members who are looking to come to Ireland with their UK national spouse or family member post the 31st of December 2020, 
However, they have no automatic entitlement to do so, but their UK national spouse or family member can sponsor an application for them to come with them. And these applications must be made through a pre-clearance or visa scheme and must be made prior to travel to Ireland. And as part of this application, the UK national must be able to satisfy certain financial conditions to show that they'd be in a position to support their family members whilst they're in Ireland. So the Irish Naturalisation Immigration Service is the body that deals with these applications and they've detailed information on their website as to this application process. Okay, thanks, Laura. And then, Russell, before we turn to you, I just want to quickly run through some of the implications for European Works Councils coming out of the Christmas Eve agreement. And this, of course, is a topic that we covered in much broader detail in one of our webinars last October with Tom Hayes from Berg and with Kevin Duffy, formerly of the Labour Court. And of course, the issue here is that post the Brexit referendum, a large number of employers, international employers that had European Works Councils operating out of the UK had to move them out of the UK and find the new governing law, many of which were moving to Irish law. Irish law is probably considered to be the most popular choice because Ireland is now the only remaining English-speaking jurisdiction within the EU, obviously, but also because the Irish legislation implementing the Works Council Directive was considered to be much closer to the UK model and much more balanced than perhaps some of the overly employee-friendly implementation that you saw in France or Germany. Now, Throughout the Brexit negotiation period, the UK union movement was continuously holding out some hope that if an agreement could be reached on Brexit, that there would be some sort of carve-out or special status for EWCs within that, and that it would allow EWCs to continue to operate under UK law. Having looked at the Christmas Eve agreement on this point, and having been through the point actually with three different clients already from different perspectives over the last month, but perhaps most importantly, having seen correspondence issued between the European Commission and Berg over the past couple of days, which restates its position, I think we can generally say that Brexit means Brexit for EWCs as far as UK law is concerned, and they have no further status or continued role in the UK. And there are three immediate consequences, I think, that flow from that. The first is that if you are a large employer with an EWC, that is still operating under UK law, as of the 1st of January, you must now immediately nominate a new governing law, and Irish law still remains the most popular choice. Secondly, even if your agreement doesn't operate under UK law, if you have UK members sitting on your European Works Council or sitting as part of a special negotiating body with a view to negotiating one, unless your agreement provides otherwise, those UK representatives are no longer entitled to be part of the process. So in effect, they are automatically disqualified and excluded from the process. It's only if your agreement provides otherwise or if you at this point agree to allow them to continue. And there may be broader strategic reasons as to why an employer would not want to do so. So if you're interested in that, we'd be happy to talk to you about that afterwards. And, and likewise, if any of you are interested in seeing the correspondence between the Commission and Berg on this point, we'd be happy to share a copy of that with you. The third implication is that for UK-based EWC expert advisors who are operating out of the UK, there's now a real question mark over their continued ability to provide that service. In practice, a lot of these experts were based out of the UK, but it now means they are operating from a third country, so they're a third country service provider. So they are, in effect, exporting their service into the EU and will be subject to the same rigour as any other third country service provider. So there is a problem there in terms of red tape for EWCs that want to continue using these experts as the advisors to the employees. These are already live issues for employers. As I say, I've been through each of these three separate points with three different clients in regard to their EWCs since coming back in January. And what we've seen overall is that the influx of EWCs that previously were operating out of the UK moving to virus law has only continued since the start of January. So that's it in terms of Brexit. I'll turn now to Russell, who's going to bring us through the last section on today's webinar, and that's really where we are as regards COVID. So, Russell, yesterday the lockdown was extended once again. Can you just bring us through what the main implications are for employers as a result? Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, that's the, the biggest update that I have. It's, of course, the, the announcement yesterday that 
countries remaining in level five of the framework for restrictive measures until the, the 5th of March. That means that employees must continue to work from home unless they work in health, social care or other essential services. And the work that they do in those settings can't be done from home. So we've all been working under lockdown conditions, obviously, since early December. So the announcement will actually change very little, if anything, for most employers. But it does signal what will hopefully be the end point for the lockdown. And while the country should still be subject to the government's framework for restrictive measures after the 5th of March, employers can now at least plan for the more flexible business and working environment that the lower levels of restriction will bring. It is worth noting as well that in all five levels of the framework, it's envisaged that employees should work from home where possible. So assuming the framework remains in place until the vaccination program has been rolled out for most of the country, employers should be planning for remote working under the framework to continue well into the final quarter of, of the year or thereabouts. By that stage, and as Laura has already said, we should have much more clarity about the more general obligations that employers will have in relation to remote working with remote working set to become a much more permanent feature of our working lives after the pandemic. The other point to note as you prepare and plan for a return to work over the coming months is that employers will be obliged to comply with the government's work safely protocol, which was revised back in November when it was originally the return to work safety protocol. I don't propose to go through the various requirements of the uh, work safety protocol, but you should familiarise yourselves with some of the more significant changes that it introduced in November last year, such as the requirement to consult with employees about the appointment of a lead worker representative, the changes uh, to the requirements around the pre-return to work forms, and then also the imposition of various obligations on employees in relation to the protocol, and also obligations to comply with directions of employers. That obviously reflects the statutory duties that employees have under the health and safety legislation, but that's all now kind of reflected as well in, in the revised protocol. And Russell, the vaccine is obviously our light at the end of the tunnel. And since probably October, November, we've been facing an increased number of queries on different aspects of dealing with the vaccine. In fact, the very first query we received on the vaccine was as far back as last July before there even was one. But can you just bring us through the, the main issues for employers there? And in particular, what are employers actually doing? What are we seeing? Yeah, so it, it's definitely one of the, the hot topics at the moment. It's getting a lot of attention. I, I just saw this morning, actually, uh, Ingrid Miley on RTE.ie was uh, talking about a survey that's been done across employers. So it'll be interesting to see actually how the response to our survey goes later in comparison to that. Many of us also saw last week the London-based company Pimlico Plumbers implemented a new policy called No Jab, No Job which as I'm sure you can deduce from the title, means that an employee simply won't get work if they don't have the vaccination and presumably won't get paid. They're one of the companies that were involved in the high-profile status-related cases many years ago, so it looks like they have an unhealthy appetite for, for litigation. But it is, as you say, Brian, a very valid position for them to take if they want to do it. It's absolutely not something that is without risk. And as you said, we've been getting a number of queries from employers basically asking whether it is possible under Irish law to require an employee to be vaccinated as a condition of them returning to the workplace. As you can imagine, there is a whole host of different complex uh, legal issues around that. But in essence, it isn't currently permissible under Irish law to require an employee to take a vaccine. And that's mainly due to the fact that individuals in Ireland have various different constitutional rights, including the right to bodily integrity, which includes the right to refuse medical treatment, the right to earn a livelihood and also the right to privacy. It, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that the government could look to mandate vaccines on the basis that the common good or public policy overrides the relevant constitutional rights, but there's absolutely no suggestion up to now that the government is going to do that, and even in, in the healthcare sector where you'd expect it to be done first. But as I said, there's no suggestion at all that that's going to happen. Um, in addition to employment and constitutional law issues, um, there are, of course, the now standard and perennial data protection obligations to consider when you're processing data relating to vaccinations. Without going into that in any detail, the main kind of point, I think, for employers to consider at the outset where they're looking at this issue is that they should carry out a data protection impact assessment to assess the legal basis and the need to process uh, vaccine-related data. So, I guess then turning to the second question that you asked, Brian, you know, one of the follow-up questions that we've been getting from clients is in circumstances where they can't require employees to take a vaccine, what can they do then to ensure that they're complying more generally with their health and safety obligations? 
And before I kind of take you through the advice that we're uh, discussing with a lot of clients at the moment, I just want to explain a kind of a situation that arose during the summer. And that was that a lot of employers were coming to us at that stage and asking whether they could mandate COVID-19 testing before allowing employees to return to the workplace. And for different reasons, the vast majority, if not all of the clients we were speaking with, decided to opt for a voluntary approach. What was striking, though, about all of that was that lots of the employers found that because so many of their employees voluntarily chose to take the tests, they actually came surprisingly close to the same level of take-up that they would have expected had they rolled out a mandatory program. So our recommendation to employers that have come to us in relation to the vaccine um, more recently with, with queries is that they should consider an approach that encourages and supports employees to take the vaccine without actually requiring them to take it because of the legal potential legal issues associated with that. And obviously, that kind of approach will hopefully result in a very significant take-up for employers in any event. Um, if there are refusals, and inevitably there will be refusals, employers should be ready to implement alternative health and safety measures to address the risks associated with the refusal. And it's important that those measures are based on an employer undertaking a proper health and safety risk assessment, as well as also obtaining medical advice in relation to any risks that are identified the aim with those two steps in particular is that you're going to strengthen your position in relation to the measures that you ultimately impl implement. And that includes requiring an employee to work remotely. Uh, because even where you take that sort of a step where you ask somebody to work remotely because they refuse to take a vaccine, it's not without legal risk. So you do need to take into account each employee's individual circumstances and the specific reasons that they're citing for their refusal to be vaccinated. The concern here, just in brief, is that you know, an employer shouldn't be in a position where it is directly discriminating against an employee on the grounds of religion or disability, for instance. But it could be the case, and there's a, a risk that an employee could say that they are being indirectly discriminated against because a particular practice, that practice of sending them home to remote work, is something that puts them potentially at a disadvantage. But obviously, if you've taken the steps of getting a risk assessment, if you've gotten your medical advice, then you'll be able to hopefully show that you can objectively justify the measure that you're implementing on the basis that it achieves a legitimate aim. And of course, that aim is, you know, the need to safeguard the health and well-being of your staff and also comply with your own obligations. Yeah, so that's all there is to say uh, about vaccinations, Brian, but there, there is there is a lot in it. But um, I'm sure over the next few weeks and months, there's, there's going to be more developments on it and more brave employers putting their neck on the line with no job, no, no job policies. And I can see again from the questions coming in that it's, it's something that is raising a lot of interest in particular. Just very quickly on the last one, Russell, the government support schemes, how long more are they likely to continue to be in place for? Yes, yeah, so there's three main COVID-specific supports. There's the Employment Wage Subsidy Scheme, which is the payroll support scheme for employers. That's to continue until the 31st of March. Then there's the employee-specific supports, the Pandemic Unemployment Payment and the COVID-19 Enhanced Illness Benefit. They are also to continue until the 31st of March. The announcement yesterday didn't fare at all to whether or not those supports will be extended. However, the, the supports were in place when the country was at level two and level three of the uh, framework. So the likelihood is that they will be extended beyond the 31st of March, but we just have to wait to see how long that will be for. It's also probably worth noting that up to this point, the government has waited to implement extensions to the supports literally in the days immediately before the supports were due to end. So it's likely that any extensions won't be confirmed until the last week or two in March. Okay, thanks, Russell. So that brings to an end the main section for today. What we want to do now is just move on to questions and answers. We have a lot of questions in. There are clearly a lot of issues that we could still talk about. But before we get to the questions, I'd like to just quickly run through a, a quick poll addressing some of the questions and issues coming out of the session that we've just gone through. So on the first question, assuming COVID is the main priority, and let's, let's park that if we could, what are the other main themes that are going to be your main priority for the year? I certainly expected it was going to be between the right to disconnect and the remote working. It's interesting to see just the degree to which the right to remote working is so far ahead of the right to disconnect. In a way, that suggests to me that people were already dealing with the right to disconnect in, in their own way uh, long before COVID, but the right to remote working, while clearly as a concept it existed pre-COVID, we certainly didn't have the kind of numbers that we have operating from home now. Employee mental health as the third issue, again, it's something that definitely predated COVID. Russell, have you any thoughts on that first one? 
Are you surprised to see any of those results? Not really, no. I think it's clear that everyone is really focusing on remote working, not just because of the announcement last week. It's been on everyone's radar. And it's also something that the government, in fairness to them, have been talking about more specifically in relation to the pandemic, but more generally as well over the last couple of months. I think the right to disconnect is almost inextricably linked with it because the idea of remote working has thrown up the mental welfare sort of issues that Alison talked about before. But I think I was expecting to see that poor old Brexit down at 11%, not getting a look in with all things COVID. But yeah, that doesn't surprise me, 75%. And then Geraldine, on the second question around the extent to which employers are already taking steps to build in a right to disconnect, have you any thoughts on that result? I'm not surprised that the poll is quite low at 29% who have taken steps to implement a right to disconnect and 71% haven't. In my experience, most employers that I'm working with haven't taken steps yet to implement it, but are, I suppose, taking a wait and see approach to see what comes down the tracks on this and then develop a, a policy around it. And I'm, I'm interested for those who have already taken steps to implement a right to disconnect, whether that might be just kind of very practical measures to say to, to encourage people, you know, to not to, you know, use email during office hours and to encourage people not to, you know, have a, a culture of presenteeism and things like that. So I think that is certainly what I see in practice as, as the more practical steps that employers are taking. And then we've seen a lot of organisations will have a line at the end of their emails saying, you know, I'm sending this email now because it's convenient for me, but I'm not looking mm. for a response from you now, or this can wait till tomorrow, things like that. So I think those type of practical measures are probably what a lot of organisations are doing to try and limit out of office hour emails. And then on the third question, do you plan to implement a wider remote working model, part-time or full-time post-COVID? 84% of people have said yes, which I'm not at all surprised by. In a way, I think employers are nearly at a point where it's going to be very difficult not to be doing something, especially with the government introducing such a broad agenda to promote this, which, as I mentioned before, I think is the right thing to do in any event. Fourth question, Russell, just on the extent to which employers are likely to require people to prove they've had the vaccine there's a no there of 91%. It reminds me a little bit of when we looked at the whole issue of mandatory testing last summer. One of the main reasons that employers had shied away from it was just the, the minefield of GDPR issues that it raised above everything else. Have you any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I, I, there's, there is, like it is a minefield, uh, not just for, for GDPR, there's the constitutional rights piece, there's you know the potential exposure to various different claims, constructive unfair dismissal, discrimination type claims. But I think the result there doesn't surprise me at all. And actually, interesting, you know, I mentioned before Ingrid Miley's poll this morning that she talked about in her article. And I think 23% of employers that were polled on that said that they would be looking to mandate vaccinations. But there was a disproportionate amount of UK employers that were acting as respondents in that survey. And I think in the UK, there's less of a risk because they don't have those constitutional rights that we would have so I wasn't surprised to see the number up at 23, where there was like 75% of the respondents were based in the UK. I'm not surprised at all to see that level amongst our, amongst the people who are listening to, to the webinar this morning. So it is very, very risky. You know, there's going to be very limited circumstances where you can mandate it, uh, but I'm not surprised to see that. That kind of reflects the survey we took during the summer about COVID-19 testing. Yeah, I'd agree. So just moving on now to the main question and answer section. Alison, I'm going to come back to you with the very first question. This is an interesting one, and it relates to the whole idea of remote work. But the question is whether employers are still required to record employees' working time if they are working from home. And I have seen kind of an increased assumption on the part of employers that all bets are off once their employees are at home because it's so much harder to record their time. Yeah, and it's actually a question that's came up a lot from clients over the past number of months. I suppose the short answer to that, Brian, is yes. Employers do need to be recording employees' working time in the same way as they would if an employee was in the office and employees are entitled to their usual breaks and rest periods as defined in the legislation. And in our experience, really, like the Workplace Relations Commission inspectors, they are continuing to enforce employer obligations to track employee working time, despite the practical difficulties that this creates for employers during this um, COVID-19 period. So um, employers do need to keep it on their radar at the moment. And just for broader consideration, 
it goes hand in hand with the right to disconnect. And as part of the submission process going into the department, we uh, participated in one. And one of the points we raised was that the whole working time recording regime also needs to be modernized in line with the way employers now operate and employees operate. So now is the perfect time to do this because there is such a mismatch already with the way these working time recording obligations apply, let alone what they will be like when we get to a regime with a right to disconnect built into it. Laura, can I turn to you with the next question then? It's in regard to working from home again. And uh, one person has asked, where is the best place to look for resources or guides in relation to this? Yes, so for the moment, probably the best places to look are the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment's website. They were previously the Department of Business, Enterprise and Innovation, and then the Health and Safety Authority's website. So the DTE has published guidance for employers and employees on remote working. And this is a key resource as it deals with key considerations such as health and safety, working time obligations, employee mental health, and also data privacy considerations. And it contains helpful links in it to, for example, the Data Protection Commissioner's guidance on protecting personal data while working remotely. It also has a checklist for employers. That's a very helpful resource then the Health and Safety Authority's website would also be a good place to look as the strategy confirms that health and safety obligations will continue to apply even when employees are working remotely. So the Health and Safety Authority has guidance as well and the guidance sets out a practical five-step approach for employers when managing remote working. And I guess one point just to note as well, just on the strategy, is that one of the key objectives of the strategy is to make sure that employers have access to -to up-to-date information and guidance on remote working. So they've said that the department's website will be kept up to date and will be a live resource for employers on remote working. Okay, thanks, Laura. Geraldine, I have a very practical question here in regard to the new code of practice. The question asks, what does an employer do if they receive a complaint that relates to an incident that happened before the end of December, i.e. before the code came into effect, but the complaint wasn't received until January? And I was going to say, Ordinarily, you would say that sounds like a Christmas party incident, but of course, these days, that wasn't one. But if you could answer the question, we'd be interested to hear on that. Um, yeah, I suppose the straightforward answer there that is that if the allegation has been raised after the Code of Practice was introduced on the 23rd of December, then the Code of Practice will apply in terms of managing that allegation, the investigation and the um, either the informal or formal process for, for resolving it. Russell, there's a a couple of questions here on the vaccine already, um, but the the first one in was whether an employer can require somebody engaging in business travel to take the vaccine. The short answer is the same risks apply just because they're they're traveling doesn't change the the, the risk kind of profile. And indeed, with the the new travel restrictions that are coming in place, there's also that to cope with. But I think the the short answer is, you know, the same risks apply despite the fact that somebody's going to be traveling and, and the need to travel. And then a variation on the same theme, can an employer require non-employees who are coming on site to either have the vaccine or prove that they've taken it? Again, they can't because of the more or less the same reasons as mentioned before. Um, It's just the the same rights arise for people, whether they're employees or non-employees, basically. Geraldine, are there any other changes in the law as regards the type of claims employees can now take as a result of the changes in the code? On, in relation to allegations of bullying, no, the no, the legal proceedings or the options to employees remain the same. So typically we see a claim for either constructive dismissal or maybe personal injuries for psychological damage caused as a result of the bullying or might be a claim for the employer's failure to comply with the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act or potentially breach of contract, but the, the claims are the same. And if it's harassment, of course, it's a claim under the Employment Equality Acts. For harassment specifically. And then there's also a question here around whether in bullying investigations, the individual carrying out the investigation or the fact-finding exercise and the decision-maker should always be different. This is something that comes up a bit. Yeah, it does. And the person should be different. So the investigator should just simply be gathering the facts and then determining whether based on the facts, there is enough evidence there that warrants referring the matter 
to a disciplinary hearing, for example, to determine the sanction that would apply at that point, if any. So the decision maker then will always be a different person. The decision maker who chairs the disciplinary hearing will decide again on the allegations, whether they are substantiated and then whether they warrant a sanction being applied. Laura, there's a question here again on the national strategy, uh, just in relation to what incentives or proposals the government has in mind to facilitate all of this. Yes, so the government, the strategy says that the government is plans to invest in a network of remote working hubs, so to facilitate remote working across the country. And it also says that the government is going to try to bring forward the national broadband plan, so to ensure that high-speed broadband is available across Ireland. The government also plans to lead by example by mandating that 20% of the public sector will be required to work um, remotely or from home. In terms of tax, then the strategy says that the Department of Finance will review the tax arrangements on remote working in the next budget to consider whether any further enhancements are required to support employees with the costs of working remotely or working from home. So for the moment, employees are able to claim €3.20 a day in addition to electricity and heating costs. And in last year's budget, they also introduced employees are able to claim a portion of their broadband costs as well for last year. So the government's going to review that in this budget and see if anything further is required. So you've probably seen some of the commentary in the media in recent weeks about the extent to which these type of tax changes have actually been that beneficial to employees. So it'll be interesting to see what the detail looks like when we get to that stage. Laura, there's another question here in relation to um, immigration and the impact of Brexit, whether it has changed the 50-50 rule in any way. Yeah, that's a good question. And for those who don't know, I guess, what the 50-50 rule is, it's a rule that applies to employment permit applications where an employer has to be able to show that their workforce consists of 50% EEA or Swiss nationals at the time of making an employment permit application. So obviously with the UK leaving the EEA, this could cause issues. So the rule has been changed so that UK nationals won't count as non-EEA nationals for the purpose of this rule. So what it basically means is that when an employer is applying for an employment permit for an employee, they will have to have 50% or their workforce will have to consist of 50% EEA Swiss or UK nationals, which is obviously helpful for organisations that employ a large number of UK nationals. Okay, thank you, Laura. Geraldine, another question here relating to the point you made about mediation in the Code of Practice. Are employers now actually required to engage in mediation or build it into their own policy? And do they have to use an external mediator? Um, It's certainly recommended that it's built into the policy that mediation will be explored as a method of informally resolving an allegation of bullying. But mediation will always be a voluntary process that both parties have to be willing to participate in. So it's certainly not mandatory. The Code of Practice very clearly advocates it and that it should be used at the earliest possible opportunity. And it also does say that, you know, organisations should consider that they appoint somebody who is qualified and suitably qualified to be a mediator. And that may need to be an external person if they don't have anybody internally. So it's certainly something that should always be considered when an allegation of bullying is, is raised. And I think our collective experience within the group is that mediation can work very well Even if a dispute is at an early stage, certainly when it's at the more contentious stage, it can work well. Uh, So I think employers shouldn't necessarily be afraid to engage in mediation at the right time to resolve a dispute because it just opens up a range of other options rather than just matters going to litigation. Alison, you mentioned as well employers talking about amending their policies to get ready for the right to disconnect. But of course, The general advice we're giving is let's just wait and see what the legislation looks like before we introduce any fundamental changes. But what type of changes are you seeing employers already introduced to try and get ready for this? Because we know some have been doing so far easily the last couple of years. Yeah. So some employers have set up training, I suppose, on the idea of this right to disconnect, which is kind of rolled out with training on time recording and time management generally. So that is definitely something that can be helpful just to create a positive uh, culture in the workplace, I guess. And another initiative we have seen some clients introduce is automatic out of office responses that would highlight, I guess, that employees are not required to respond to emails outside of working hours. 
and as Geraldine mentioned in, in the poll results there, we have noticed a recent trend amongst many of our clients who are now including, you know, standard language in their email footers, just to demonstrate that the business is committed to ensuring that employees take appropriate rest breaks and that it is committed to developing an environment with a positive work-life balance. Another kind of more practical thing is just, you know, to make managers aware that they should be trying to manage client expectations across the team. And that kind of culture and messaging coming from management is a really key aspect. And I think they're kind of the main things we've seen. Like, to be honest, some clients had had really started to move on on these kind of practical steps long before COVID-19. And while the KEPAC decision really kind of kickstarted all these discussions in Ireland, certain of our international clients were already adopting measures to build in this approach and, you know, taking advice on how to implement it here in Ireland. Okay. Thank you, Alison. Just to run through some of the other questions that have come in, I think we've covered a lot of them. There was one question here in relation to how long the legislative process is going to take in regard to the right to disconnect. Alison and Laura, I think you've both covered the, the intended timetable. With, with any piece of legislation, it's often a question of how long is a piece of string. The gender pay gap legislation is a good example of how long things can take, even though they shouldn't take that long. I do think, however, that in regard to the right to remote working and the right to disconnect, There is such focus on them now that the government is going to move very quickly on it, but we just don't have any any specific guaranteed timetable. Somebody has also asked whether or not there's a draft of the Code of Practice in regard to the right to disconnect yet to be reviewed. There isn't, but obviously we can share details in due course when we have a little bit more information on it. There is another question here in relation to something completely different on the current process in the UK of consulting in regard to the use of restrictive covenants and whether Ireland is likely to follow suit. Now, we haven't heard of any proposals in Ireland to do anything like that yet. Often with Irish employment law, we do take the initiative from what might be taking place in the UK. Sometimes it takes longer. Quite coincidentally, we are as a group actually participating in the UK consultation process. We have been invited by the UK Employment Lawyers International Employment Law Committee as the Irish representative to give our thoughts on how this works in Ireland. So I think we will have an interesting perspective from that role into what's going on in the UK and how it might work here. So what I'd like to do is just wrap it up at that. I'd like to thank everybody on the panel for their contribution. It has been a a really interesting discussion and I'd like to thank everybody who has joined us today. It has been great interest in this first webinar for the year. So it's great to have had you all join us today. So I'll leave it at that. We will keep you informed as to other webinars coming up. We have one each month for the next three or four months, I think. So I'll just close it at that and thank you all. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.